welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now and fill our hearts with the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that in this very familiar text of Scripture, uh, we would be granted fresh hearing, uh, fresh eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And Lord, please, I pray that you would give us the grace that we would be able to apply it to our own lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, well, let me repeat something for the umpteenth time. For those of us here at Christ Church, we hear this all the time, and it's this. Your life is going to be determined. Your life is going to be defined. It's going to be controlled. It's going to be defined, formed, and shaped by a story. Your life is going to be shaped by a narrative. Every one of us this morning, whether we know it or not, Every one of us has believed a story, a narrative about life, and we are lining our lives up with that story. And there are many, many stories. There's stories of consumerism, stories of nationalism, stories of racism, stories of rejection, all kinds of stories that we think are true, and we're living our lives based on those stories. And that's why for us, the broad story as believers, the broad story of God's word, that's why the scriptures, the Bible story, that's right, the Bible story is so important for us as believers because, listen, it gives us the true story of the whole world. It is the true story of the whole world. It tells us what is true and good and beautiful. And if we live our lives In that story, it will generate a life of value, of authenticity, of purpose, of meaning. To put it very briefly, it will, it will produce human flourishing, right relationship between you and God and right relationship between you and others. Now notice in that list of things it produces, being comfortable is not one of them. It will get you into trouble. This story will get you into trouble. But it's the best place to be when we're in the middle of God's story. And throughout the whole Bible, there are smaller stories. There are vignettes that reverberate, that encapsulate the the grand story of the entire story of Scripture. The passage that we just heard read by Deacon Ann this morning from Luke chapter 15, what we often hear called the parable of the prodigal son, I would call it the parable of the loving father and two lost sons, two lost sons. That passage is one of those great stories. Someone has once opined that Jesus's story of the parable of the prodigal son is the greatest story in the Bible or out of it for that matter. It's just one of the great stories of all time. And if you are like me, you love this parable. And again, if you're like me, you find it really easy to identify with the son who is lost and who comes home. That's part of my story. 
But the problem with the parable of the loving father and the two lost sons is that it has suffered from the fact that we actually think, we think that we know what this story is about. We think we know what this story is about. And one of the ways I know that we have missed the intended meaning of this text is that often in order to save time, I have heard this parable abbreviated to end at Luke chapter 15, verse 24. Uh, you know, this son of mine was lost, but now he's found. He's dead, but he's alive again. Isn't that great? But then we leave out the part about the older brother, which is the critical, uh, the, the, the indispensable conclusion to this story. And also, unless we listen for, unless we attend to two related contexts, we're going to miss what is going on in this passage. Now, the first context is just the setting of the story in, in which the, this scripture presents itself. Where in the Bible? What's it all about? Why is it in there? That's the first context. And the second context, and I'll bring this up as we go through the exposition of the text, is is the ancient Middle Eastern, particularly Jewish, ancient Middle Eastern Jewish context of this story. Because if we don't see it through Middle Eastern eyes, we're not going to see what's going on here. So let's deal with that. Well, let's deal with the setting of the story in the scripture itself. That's where we're going to go first. Well, to begin with, to understand this text, we had to include uh, verses 1 through 3 of Luke chapter 15. This is what it says in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, this man Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So they are grumbling, and it says, So he told them this parable. The first thing that we notice is that Jesus is telling this parable because the Pharisees and the scribes, in other words, those who care very deeply about being faithful to God and to the Bible, these people, these good religious people are scandalized because Jesus, to use their words, receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus' purpose for telling this parable is to explain, he is going, this is why he's telling the parable. He is going to explain why he welcomes sinners and why he eats with sinners. So the setup here is that the Pharisees and the scribes are saying this about Rabbi Jesus. Rabbi Jesus, you just do not take sin seriously enough. You just don't want to understand how bad sin really is. If you understood, if you were really serious about sin and how these people are breaking Torah, then you wouldn't be spending any time with these folks who don't give a rip about keeping God's word. You wouldn't spend the, you would not only would you not spend, you certainly wouldn't eat with them and you wouldn't give them the time of day. So then in Luke chapter three, it says that Jesus tells them, listen, he tells them, this parable to explain his actions. Notice that it doesn't say that Jesus told them these parables because there's actually what looks like three little stories here. And there are, there's three little vignettes. There's the, the following parable is that of the lost sheep. And then there's a little story about a lost coin. And then, then there's the story of the prodigal son. And all three of these vignettes are actually one 
story. And all three of these little stories, there is something or someone who is lost, that is lost. And there is someone who goes out of their way to seek for that lost something or someone. And every one of these stories ends with what? A party. That's right. They all end with a celebration. Well, who is doing the seeking in these stories? In order to straighten out these scribes and Pharisees, he told them this story. Who is doing the seeking in these stories? Well, this is a more complex question than it first appears. They're asking Jesus why he is eating with sinners. But Jesus tells the stories in such a way that it implies, listen, this is critical. It implies that Yahweh, Israel's God, is doing the searching. Israel's God is doing the seeking. So when we read the parable of the lost sheep, for instance, we know that in the Old Testament, Israel's God, Yahweh, identifies himself as what? The shepherd of Israel. It's right there in Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, crying out to God. And of course, we have very familiar Psalm 23. How does that begin? The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And then the key verse or the key passage, I think, comes in Ezekiel chapter 34. We'll start reading at verse 11, Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God, Yahweh the Lord. In Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus is telling in these parables. He says, in Jesus Christ, Israel's God, Israel's shepherd has come looking for the lost. And the parable of the lost coin, in Jesus Christ, Yahweh is like that woman who's sweeping her house, looking, that's sweeping, I, I didn't do that right vacuuming her house, waiting to hear that coin get sucked up in the hoover. No, (laughs) sweeping the house, looking for that lost coin. And in the parable of the prodigal, who is doing the seeking? It's the father, right? So Jesus is answering this question. Why are you hanging out and even eating, sharing table fellowship with sinners? He says this, in me, your God has come in me. He has come looking for the lost. I am fulfilling my promises to Israel, just like you read in Ezekiel. And so I am like the father in this story. And so the first thing Jesus does in the story of the lost sons is that he deals with the objection that Jesus doesn't have a robust doctrine of sin. You are just... You're, you're just acting like sin doesn't matter, Jesus, eating with sinners and tax collectors. Well, how does he deal with this? He says, well, let me tell you what sin is like. And this is where we really need our Middle Eastern context. It's like a son 
telling his father that he wishes that his father, it's like telling the old man, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dro- you would drop dead. Because everyone standing around understood that that is, that when this younger son asks for his inheritance, he is saying, I wish you would just hurry up and die. Just hurry up and die, old man. It was a rejection of his entire genealogy. And it was even more shocking to Jesus' Jewish listeners than it would be to even any of us. If we heard someone say to their parent, I wish you would die so that I could have your stuff, we would think that's the worst thing we've ever heard. Multiply that by 10, and you might be approaching how it would sound in a Jewish context in 33 A.D. And then this son goes on. So that's how bad sin is. It's like telling your dad you wish he was dead so you could have his stuff. And the Pharisees and the scribes all say, ooh, that is bad. That's really bad. Jesus said, oh, it gets worse. It gets worse. And then the son goes to live in a far country, which can only mean one thing. If you go live in a far country, you have gone to live among the Gentiles. Ooh, the Pharisees and the scribes thought. That is really bad. He is living among unclean people, people, the goyim, the people of the nations. Oh, but it gets worse, Jesus says. It's worse than even that. Then he squanders his inheritance. He loses his money through reckless living to the Gentiles. So this Jewish father's inheritance, this godly man's inheritance is squandered and becomes the possession of the unclean nations. This was a crime that was so great that there was actually a Jewish traditional ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony that if the home village had heard, if the home village had heard that a son had done what this young man had done, gone to live among the Gentiles, squandered his godly father's inheritance, was living like a Gentile, they would go through the Kazaza ceremony, which was enacted. And so that what happened in that ceremony, the, the son was considered dead to the family and to the entire community and was shunned forever. You are dead to me. But they meant it literally. That's right. They would all have nodded. That's exactly how bad this is. But it gets even worse. Sin is even worse than that, Jesus says. That lost son ends up feeding pigs, which are not a Jewish delicacy. They're just not. Ooh, I've, he's been degraded. That's Look how bad sin is. You've gone from living among Gentiles to living with pigs. Oh, Jesus said, but it's worse than that. Sin is worse than that. Yes, Rabbi Jesus, you are preaching now. He even wanted to eat what pigs eat. What's nastier than pigs? What pigs eat is nastier than pigs. That's how unclean it is. Jesus is saying, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And through all this, the Pharisees would be nodding their heads in approval. Yes, yes, Rabbi, that is how bad sin is. And they're still on board when they hear that the boy has now a plan. He came to himself. He says, I know what I'll do. I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me as one of your hired men, and that'll be enough for me. He has a plan to earn back the money that he owes owes his dad. Oh, good, good. Now we're getting somewhere. 
But you need to notice this in that passage. Nowhere does it say, say that this young man repented while he was in a far country. That word, the word for repentance never appears in that young man's plan. He, he's still just scheming. He's still depending on his own wits and his own plans. I know what I'll do. I will earn my way back. I'll work for my dad. And then one day, one day I'll finally be able to pay him back. But that's when this story goes off the rails. Here's where the ancient Middle Eastern context is so important. Because in this story, what is the father doing in the passage that we've just heard? The father is searching. He is looking for his son. He is not acting like his son is dead to him at all. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him. The only way you can do that is if you're looking for him. Then not only does the father not act like the son is dead, he runs to him before he can even reach his home village when he's still far off. The father runs for him, for him, runs to him. It was shameful in the ancient, it still is shameful today in traditional Middle Eastern cultures for grown men to run. Grown men don't run. People run up to them, but they don't run anywhere. They don't hike up their, their robes and go running. That is undignified. It is shameful. But this father is so forgetful of his own dignity. He hikes up his skirts and runs out of the village to meet his son on the road. And then he receives his son back before he even knows what he's done or where he's been. He doesn't know if his son is clean or unclean. He just, I love the way it says uh, in the King James Version, he fell on his neck. He fell on his neck and kissed him. You smell like pigs. <laughs> the wayward son is not able, because of the father's grace, to enact his plan and earn back his place in the community. Rather, the father receives him through his own costly grace. The father willingly accepts in this story. We don't see it because we're not, we're not those people, but reading it through their eyes, we see it. He accepts painful, the father accepts painful public humiliation in order to reconcile with this sinner, his son. And you know what that looks a lot like? It looks like the cross. Painful, shameful humiliation. And that does beg the question, how does the son repent? Well, the son repents by just accepting to be found. He just lets himself be found on his father's terms, not on his terms. Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Quick, bring a robe. He has given the father's own festive party garment, his own party robe, to be covered in the father's costly acceptance and not to have the hatred of his community, the hatred of his village rest on his head. Sandals are brought and put on his feet to show that the father receives him as a son because sons went clad with shoes, slaves went barefoot. A signet ring was put on his finger to show that he was fully restored to the family in the fullest sense since that ring was used for sealing business deals 
And it represents the Father's authority and the Father's complete trust in the Son. That's the story. But the parable was not originally told for those who would identify with the prodigal. Maybe those tax collectors and sinners who are sitting around the table are saying, oh, okay. But it's actually told not for their benefit. It's told for the benefit of who? The Pharisees and the scribes. It's told to answer the question the religious people have. Why do you welcome sinners and eat with them? So the people of Jesus' day who were passionate about serving God and knowing His Word, passionate about serving God and knowing His Word, people like me, people like you, scribes and Pharisees, were supposed to identify with what character in this, in this story? We're supposed to identify with the older brother. I want to suggest that that's who we still should seek to identify, perhaps, to get the fullness of this story. Because we're people who want to serve God and honor His Word. The older brother is shocked and upset because the father has humiliated himself and his family by the way he's accepted this sinner. This is insulting, degrading behavior for a father. And the older brother resents the father's grace and acceptance of this sinner. And here is the older brother's blind spot. Listen, here it is. There's a blind spot here. Since he refuses to come into the party, what does the father have to do? The father leaves the celebration and goes out to seek the resentful, rule-keeping son. And the father, by doing that, humiliates himself again. He empties himself again of his honor in order to plead with the older son. Now stop right there. You might be saying right now, well, I still don't connect with that. I don't connect with this rule-keeping son, this angry son that will not come in and join the party, the son who feels alienated by the father's acceptance of the sinful son. Well, perhaps, okay, maybe this will help. Perhaps, maybe, it's within the realm of possibility that there is a point of connection here for some of us this morning. Maybe we are older brothers and sisters, if you will, sitting in this room, angry and resentful because other people, other people in the church won't do what we think they should be doing. <laughs> That's not what you should get. You shouldn't. No. I know what you should do. And yet you seem to be having a good time here, joining a celebration, accepted and received by the Father. We're resentful that all our hard work and faithfulness is not rewarded with so much as a goat so that we can have a party with our friends. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and, and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. We feel alienated. We can't join in the celebration of the community. We are vexed and resentful and are emotionally standing outside this morning because lay people or clergy people will not comply 
with our good, righteous expectations. And God pleads, let go of your resentment and come in and join the celebration. As God's ambassador this morning, I beg you, be reconciled to God. The Father's love is so great that He willingly allows Himself to be humiliated over and over by His children. Shamed by His children. I've got children. I might know a little bit what that feels like. He's shamed when the younger son asks for his inheritance, asking basically that the father would hurry up and die. He's humiliated when he runs to receive his son back. He's humiliated when the older, uh, older son refuses to join the celebration, which is really a celebration of the father's grace, a celebration of his grace, not the younger son's goodness, but the father's grace. He's humiliated when he has to go outside and publicly beg for the older son to join the celebration. That's what the father's love is like. Jesus says, you Pharisees are so worried about that, I don't understand what sin is. But what you don't understand is what God's love is. You don't understand his mercy. That's why I eat with sinners and receive those that do that. God is still willing to humiliate Himself to reconcile us estranged children. God is still seeking all of us this morning. He is seeking the rule breakers and the rule keepers. Resentful, rule-keeping, faithful, diligent Christian, will you not repent and run to your Father's gracious arms of love and forgiveness and acceptance and welcome and let him say, don't worry about who have I have invited that you don't think should be here. I love you. Won't you join the celebration? Not only Jesus says, do I eat with sinners, I run to them, fall on their necks and kiss them, and bring them into the house, clothed in my own festive garments. I am willing to humiliate myself. I am so eager to welcome sinners like you and me. Come to the table. Come to the celebration. Join the party. The Father loves us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.